Welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode nine. I'm joined here this time with Wolf Tyvey. Yeah, I'm here. And uh, Samo Borja, who's the founder of Bismarck Analysis, a political risk consulting firm. And he's also a, a brilliant sociologist. So, Samo, thanks for, for joining us on the show. Very much looking forward to the conversation. Wait, we forgot to introduce our editor-in-chief. Who are you, Jonah? <laughs> Who, what do I do here? Well, I, I run the magazine day-to-day, mostly just strategy. And uh, I let everyone else do all the hard work. Of course. We uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, that's enough of that. We're going to go uh, open the reader mailbag this week. And uh, let's, let's just open up that here and see what question we've got. The question of the week is, what mythical creature would improve the world most if it existed? Wolf, let's start with you. Well, my answer is is the Lorax, because someone has to speak for the trees. I, I couldn't come up with a better answer. <laughs> All right, this is f- fair enough. Samo? I think the Sphinx would be an important addition. It would encourage introspection, you know, at the point of some, like, really harsh incentives, tearing mm-hmm. apart people who uh, don't think through puzzles. I'm going to go with uh, Medusa. She's, uh, you know, obviously a, a monster in Greek mythology who's uh, got hair made of venomous snakes. Her, uh, she, her head was, was cut off by, you know, the hero Perseus, and uh, he kind of weaponized that sort of evil magic, and that's something I can appreciate. Gee uh, whiz, Jonah, that's a pretty edgy answer. <laughs> All right, so you know enough of that. That you know you can you can delve into what our what our answers mean psychologically for each of our profiles. But aside from that, uh, let's talk about uh, Samo's Botswana article that he wrote for us recently. It's a fantastic article, and uh, we can start by by having Samo just give us a brief overview of it to to catch up the audience on on what was in the article. Yes, I think the thing that is most interesting about uh, Botswana and why I decided to write the article is that it flaunts a lot of the wisdom of conventional conventional developmental economics. It is a landlocked country. It is a country where uh, 30 to 40% of the population is HIV positive. It is a country that is uh, primarily, you know, primary industry is export of diamonds. This already sounds like a basket case. But it's not. It's been very politically stable. It hasn't had either coups or civil wars. Note that during the same time period, this Cold War time period, countries in Europe, such as Greece, France, Portugal, had coups and sometimes even full civil wars. So that's a remarkable achievement. And beside that, it has experienced very good economic growth over the last few decades. Now, the question was obviously why? And in the article, I go into what I believe is the crucial and neglected factor in Western political thought, which is the importance of succession, where it matters very much how uh, office is transferred from one holder to the next. And if the holders are political allies, and if the skill level of the people holding the office is high enough, you can have very, very stable governance, surprisingly so, even in an institution-sparse environment. So... What motivated you to look into Botswana in the first place? When when you're thinking about countries in Africa that perform well, uh, Botswana is almost never on the, the main lists of countries people would cite. I think people would talk about Nigeria, they would talk about Kenya, they would talk about South Africa. Um, so so how did you how did Botswana come onto your radar? We were doing some general research on East Africa in particular, 
Uh, it seems to be the next important global region. It's where Chinese uh, investment will either successfully or unsuccessfully play out. This was uh, Bismarck research? Uh, correct, yes. I was also very much interested in uh, looking at non-Western countries. I think it's extremely important to go beyond our comfort zone, beyond the space of what we're usually interested in. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason why Botswana tends to not be written about is because it's a small country. You don't get a large audience from writing about a small country. Most right. pundits are not that interested in, uh, in writing about what's the most intellectually interesting thing. They're interested in writing about what, what's going to get the most clicks. Um, also, by being stable, there's not a lot of news coming out of it. Exactly, exactly. You know, a trash fire is much more interesting. <laughs> but, you know, from a trash fire or from a train wreck, there's only so much you can learn. You know, you can certainly learn how the train got derailed. But if you want to study how to build trains, find a nice working train, reverse engineer it. Uh, and, you know, that's something I'm very much interested in, in my mm -hmm. research. Uh, I ran it across the country. I tried to find what was said in the literature. Uh, what the academic literature had to say about Botswana did not make much sense. And uh, I ended up having this draft on my hands and uh, talking talking to people. Uh, several people recommended I submit it to Palladium. Great. Well, we're, we're definitely glad to have it. It's a really interesting article, totally in line with what we've been trying to look at, which is the big picture of what's actually working and not working. What are the actual mechanisms behind uh, success? You know, once we pop ourselves out of all our usual limiting assumptions, let's dig into these detailed cases. What actually is making things work so that we can then take that stuff and synthesize it and make sure that it ends up in, uh, in our worldview and, and in, the, in the consciousness of, of future decision makers. So one of the questions I wanted to ask was was about the succession model that they have in Botswana for transferring power from... Uh, head of state to head of state. Um, how does this contrast with some of the stuff you've written in the past about Roman succession, for example? Mm. Would this be some sort of hybrid model? Uh, this is a very, very... Well, first off, I wrote about uh, a period in Roman history where succession was handled quite well. This is a period of the so-called five good emperors, where each emperor is the adopted son of the previous emperor. This mm -hmm. is a period of great prosperity and stability for the late Roman Empire, very much needed after the failure of the early Republic that led to you know these deep, uh, unsolved social issues and civil war and so on. And in contrast to the later uh, imperial period that also has ubiquitous civil wars. The key interesting thing there is the practice of what's almost a political alchemy. By a stroke of a pen, you make your worst rival that is a powerful, general with political ambitions your strongest supporter when you make them your adopted son you have made your own political legacy their inheritance which means that they need to build on your legitimacy and build on your successes to legitimize their own success and their own legitimacy mm -hmm. right if you have a system of government where you need to destroy the legitimacy of the previous administration to be legitimate such as is often the case with many anti you know uh, post-colonial ideologies. Uh, we can here, for example, look at a country like Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, I think um, Mugabe, you could build his prestige precisely proportionally to how much he discredited uh, the previous regime. And of course, not to say that previous regimes don't do things incorrectly, the previous emperors don't do things incorrectly. It just means that you can't really say nice things uh, about the previous government. 
which means even before you reach your office, you kind of want to sabotage them. And you don't, you don't get to inherit their people either. No, you don't inherit their social connection. And in the Roman case, uh, adoption of adults was not just a legal fiction, it was a concrete social reality. People would do this when they did not have children, and they wanted to continue their family name even if their family line had ended. They wanted the legacy of the family to be transferred to, to the future and preserved in this way. Um, I think this makes a lot of sense. I think if you think about it in terms of Western countries, there are plenty of monarchies, such as the British monarchy, which, you know, is uh, this possession that's been transferred between several dynasties and several ruling families. And the legacy, in a way, of uh, Henry VIII is safeguarded, all those nice buildings and castles and so on, uh, just as surely ha as if the line had continued. Uh, I think the Romans understood this on a number of levels in their own society, uh, the model of Botswana is different. Yeah, going back to the, the Roman example, I want to delve a little bit deeper into um, some of the institutional prerequisites or structural prerequisites to being able to do that move of picking your rival mm -hmm. as your successor. Correct. So one of the obvious barriers to that is if you actually have some strong disagreement with your rival, which is to say they're not just your political rival, they're somehow your ideological rival. Um, and, and thinking through that, it, it strikes me that in some systems, more conflict between ambitious rivals is going to be of an ideological type, and in some it's going to be more of a personal power or uh, military or whatever it was, Correct. The, the kind of thing the Romans were, were competing over. And, and so if you had a system where the conflict is more ideological in character, I would say it makes it much harder to do that transference of legitimacy Whereas if it's just like, oh, you, you have that big chunk of the empire and I have this chunk and we seem to be fighting a little bit, but we could just as easily not fight, then it makes such deals possible. And, and, and so I'm interested in your thoughts on whether those structural issues are, are or, or what you think about those structural things. It's an interesting question to what extent Romans engaged in ideological warfare or not. Right. It's very difficult to study ancient states. I think it is very important to study ancient states because they represent this, um, they're an example of society being run sometimes notably differently and at other times very similarly. Um, for an example, you know, the, um, I think it's the optimates, the optimates and the populares are mm. often interpreted by modern historians as ideologically distinct factions. Mm -hmm. All things considered, however, uh, Roman elites were operating on a shared understanding of what are the viable sources of legitimacy. It was uh, things such as, you know, uh, operating in the context of laws they highly valued, displaying personal virtue of various kinds. Mm -hmm. They definitely engaged in large-scale propaganda campaigns. If you think of Julius Caesar's, you know, basically Julius Caesar was blogging about his conquest as it was ongoing. He was sending back these written reports that were read out in Rome to the public. So the Romans are certainly doing PR, uh, perhaps not the way Americans would. And part of the PR was there was this understanding that the transfer, um, the transfer of prestige from one notable individual to another was stronger in that society than it is today. 
Well, also that the prestige was held by individuals. Of course, of course. I mean, to be fair, our society also allows for certain kinds of prestige to be held by individuals as individuals. Yeah. Uh, you know, it works. It works in um, in hip hop and it works in entertainment. If you have a great celebrity endorse another talented artist, often that name is a big kickstart to the career, right? right? Like you know, I think Eminem basically became a, a notable rapper that way, um, and. In politics, it does not quite work that way. Uh, presidential endorsements are shockingly weak. I think it's because we tend to distrust or don't even expect the ability to evaluate a person's character to being vital for office holders. We want our office holders to be connected to the mass of the people. Uh, we want our office holders to represent the interests of the citizenry. And we don't really think through whether they are good judges of character. We almost prefer to just judge their character rather than judge them on the basis of, uh, well, can they evaluate other individuals? And yeah. I think Romans very much believed yeah. that, you know, if anything, Julius Caesar or Augustus or Marcus, you know, uh, Marcus Aurelius, they know better than I do yeah. well, it, who, who has the right character for an office that I have never held and that they have held. Right. And, and the incentives on modern politicians are such that... It, you know, even if you sort of could judge that they have good judge of character, you don't necessarily actually trust what they're saying because they are under so many pressures to say things that are essentially political moves rather than mm. uh, rather than being, you know, reflective of their inner judgment or something. I definitely agree. That's a um, that's a negative political pressure. It pushes away from good outcomes. It pushes away from what is known to be the best solution because what is known to be a good solution is often messaged as its complete opposite, right? right. Like a lot of the critiques that came out um, of like Macron's carbon tax was that, oh, you implemented it wrong. You implemented it in such a way that the population knew it was being taxed. Right. Isn't that funny? Like, whether or not such a tax is correct, it's, it's really funny that uh, that sort of implementation detail matters so much and that messaging detail matters so much. Now, on the other hand, though, I do have to stand by the statement that the Romans were doing their own form of PR. Yes, so yes. Romans were, you know, as long as um, you had Mark Anthony... Uh, be, being a close ally with Octavian, Octavian would only say positive things. As soon as Mark Anthony was in cahoots with Cleopatra, you know, uh, suddenly rumors would spring up in Rome that Mark, Mark is like practicing, uh, practicing witch, Egyptian witchcraft uh -oh. and is dressing as an Egyptian and is bewitched by this terrible witch. He's no longer the Roman war hero, but this poor enslaved man. And you realize, oh, okay. There might have been some truth in that. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, it might have been some truth. Uh, whether there was truth or not, I think it was, you know, the propaganda sure, value. of course. That made this stuff deployed. And on the other hand, Mark Anthony was like, this kid Octavian, he has no experience. He doesn't even know Caesar. If Caesar saw Octavian today, he would be disappointed. If you think it through, I'm the true heir of Caesar. Caesar would have endorsed me, etc., etc. This was like very much a, 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 a tug and pull type of situation and you know had Antony and Cleopatra won well maybe Shakespeare would have written a, 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 a play about the tragic mad child Octavian drunk on power instead of uh, instead of his uh, his play on Cleopatra often the winners set history but I do actually want to return to yeah, Botswana because in Botswana uh, there is no adult adoption uh, you know Every president, however, so far since independence, 
has been the vice president of the previous one. Yeah. So you have an interesting situation where uh, Seretsakama is the president that leads uh, Botswana to independence. Note, by the way, Seretsakama is the grandson of Kama III, who reigned from 1875 to 1923 and is also the uh, king of Botswana that wisely chooses to join the British Empire as a way to prevent himself from being conquered by Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes wanted to add Botswana to the British Empire anyway and to his own burgeoning diamond and mining empire. Uh, and this was like a very wise active political rule uh, move by the Kama family because it allowed them to preserve political autonomy and authority. Like within the British Empire, they still basically got to manage many facets of Botswanan life. And this was very different from what was the case in, say, South Africa or what was to become Rhodesia and so on. So his grandson, Siritsa Kama, leads the independence movement. Uh, he ascends not as the king of Botswana, the Tswana traditionalists and the Tswana make up 80% of the population of the country, still consider him the rightful chief. Uh, after that, his vice president, uh, his vice president Ket Masire, serves as president for 18 years. After him, Festus Moga, who is uh, again the vice president of Ket Masire. And finally, Ayankama, the son of Seretsakama, the great-grandson of Kama III, serves not only as a vice president, but as president and holds office from 2008 to 2018. Um, the current president, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Mogwetsi, I think, uh, he served as Ayan Kama's vice president and right. is the current president of the country. So we have an unbroken chain of president, vice president, yeah. Over and over and over again. Well, I think notably you started this this research in 2018 when that hadn't happened yet. Correct. You formulated this thesis Correct. and then it, it, it came to be. Yes, recent events like showed show that the, the political order of Botswana persists. And I would in fact expect it to persist for the foreseeable future. They solved in their own institutional way the very difficult problem of political succession. Also, I'm going to note uh, of the people named, uh, Ayan Kama was for a while commander of the armed forces. Uh, was very active in military affairs. The high trust between Botswana and elites is very important, both mm -hmm. between the civilian government and the military government. One of the few blessings the United States has had historically has been this absence of military coups often becomes the most powerful and the most popular generals know they can just run for president and win. Uh, for examples, you have, um, I think you says Grant, I think you have uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and these are, you know, this, these are notable routes. Why would you carry out a coup if you can just carry out an election campaign and win? Yeah, I want to note something interesting, which is that uh, peaceful succession, regardless of regime type, uh, is a difficult thing to secure. And we shouldn't use the example of the U.S. purely to uh, recommend, say, uh, democracy over other forms of, of government necessarily because uh, it, it may be that, that democracy as such is not the most salient variable in, in guaranteeing peaceful succession. It may be something like uh, lack of, of rival powers who are capable of, of uh, pushing the election in, in one direction or another uh, in a serious way. Uh, because I note that in other countries, democratic elections are very easily overturned uh, via military coups uh, with the aims of, say, like restoring true democracy or uh, people just contesting the results of the election 
and and often uh, because there is election fraud on both sides, it's kind of difficult to tell what actually the real legitimate outcome, in fact, was. Yeah. Well, another another factor here is like peaceful succession is itself a pretty low bar. It's not necessarily successful succession, right? And like we've seen with Trump, basically that was not a successful succession event from. Uh, like, like you see a lot of conflict around that because it, it's not representative of, of, of um, the... Well, ideally what you want is for political offices to be self-sustaining. If every time a new office holder comes into office by destroying and undermining the previous office holder, right. the power and influence and administrative capacity of that office will fall. It's the same if it is a, a monarchy or if it is a democracy. Mm -hmm. Over time, the role of a prime minister or a president can become purely ceremonial if the best way to achieve that position is to undermine the previous holder of that position because you are undermining both the man and the office simultaneously. Yeah, and, and the people who need to seriously get stuff done will tend to build their institutions such that they don't have to rely on that position with anymore. The, with the example of the United States, I was more trying to point to uh, the high trust that exists between U.S. civilian and military yes, elites. Sure. Totally. In that it is possible to cash in your personal success and your you know, notable virtues and popularity gained in the military field in civilian politics, right? As long as that is possible, uh, ambitious military leaders will choose the civilian route because it's strictly better. Uh, an interesting example here of a country working differently is Pakistan, where Musharraf many years ago used to, I think he came to power in a, in a military coup, if I remember right, and then legitimized his rule with an election I think the election was probably fair. Uh, he achieved the office, uh, but eventually he was, I think, just voted out. Jonah, you should correct me if I'm if I'm misremembering the the history there. This is President Musharraf of Pakistan. I actually don't remember the, the history mm -hmm. of that particular case. Well, I was merely going to bring it up as an interesting example. Um, you know, in weak states, the contesting of election results, backed by military force is often, you know, a precursor to civil war. And civil war right. is one of the most economically and socially destructive things that can happen to a country. Right. And uh, sometimes it's internally generated. I think Roman civil wars, for the most part, were internally generated. Though again, you know, we can talk about Cleopatra being a queen of a whole independent country called Egypt. Yeah. Though Egypt at that point, it's, it's a Roman client state. It is, however, still legitimate foreign meddling. Uh, and the, the, the point I was trying to make earlier is that I think a lot of these mechanisms of succession are actually uh, uh, downstream of general elite coordination in general. Like, what, agreed, what is agreed. the coordination levels between different power centers that really matter in the country? Mm -hmm. and, and that resides in the skill levels and the relationships of individual people. And there's, there's no possible, like, mechanism of succession that you can paste on top of an extremely fractured elite, and not expect that the that it will go wrong. Yeah, I th I think that's I think that's true. Maybe 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 it'll move things on the margin one way or another, good or bad. Yeah, well, I think. But it's it's not fundamentally like you can't just it doesn't solve the conflict by pasting yeah, well, on. Well, this I map. think I think what it the way to understand this is these institutional mechanisms are the internal social technologies of how a coordinated group governs itself they're not something that themselves create that internal coordination. They can help, but they're not like, 
like you can't just like you can't throw you know law onto a battlefield and suddenly the the, the soldiers are arguing in court if yeah. it doesn't work like that one could take a, a page from the Taoist. the Taoists say the true Tao can't be written and I think maybe the true constitution can never be written right the word constitution in 18th century uh, discourse meant not just a legal document it meant the actual comp political composition of a country. Mm -hmm. And this is the way, say, Aristotle yeah, uses the term constitution. Sense. Exactly. When you read uh, the Constitution of Athens, it's not a wish list. It is Aristotle's best description as a political scientist of how Athens functions. I think it's very important to, uh, for us to have more such clear descriptions, both in uh, American politics and also abroad. I think with such a clear description, often seemingly mysterious features of governments become quite explainable. Right, and that's why this Botswana piece is so important, because it actually goes into these institutional uh, factors and, and looks at, okay, how does the thing actually work? What are the real mechanisms here? And so that's why I'm really excited about this. Yes. Um, interesting thing about Botswana, it has several things working in its favor with regard to uh, its internal stability. One of them was that they navigated the Cold War fairly well. Yeah, yeah. Um, a little bit of it is luck, but there were plenty of countries in South Africa, you know, I use South Africa as a region, not yeah, as a southern, country. Southern Africa. Southern Africa, exactly. Uh, southern African countries tended to be dominated either by communist insurgencies or by South Africa-aligned government. South Africa would literally invade several of the states, uh, even, I think, trying to annex one or two. Uh, they did this to try to secure themselves. And Botswana is right on the border. There are more members of the Tswana tribe that live in South Africa than there are in Botswana itself. There's a larger population of the Tswana in South Africa. And one of the interesting things there was that while Botswana was aligned with the West, including uh, because of its close economic and arguably political ties to the De Beers Mining Corporation, which is very known for its global uh, diamond monopoly. Right. Yes. Um, they're, you know, perhaps the reason you uh, you buy, um, perhaps the reason you buy diamond engagement rings. Now, whether that's, that's Some people. <laughs> whether that's good or bad, right? Whether that's good or bad, it represented. Botswana and elites with an interesting problem. You know, if you trash the corporation that is, diming, that is mining your diamonds to try to remove their diamond monopoly, can you actually maintain the high price of diamonds? It's not clear you can. So you sort of have killed the goose that's laying your diamond eggs. Right. And the second point being, uh, Western countries aware of how vital Botswana is, do not want to encourage South Africa South Africa's intervention. You mean geopolitically vital? Correct, correct. Where South Africa is somewhat Western aligned, but already has serious disagreements with other Western countries by the 1970s and 80s over the apartheid issue. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, is trying to support communist groups all around uh, Southern Africa and is trying to, if possible, overthrow the South African government with a communist government. Mm -hmm. uh, the ANC uh, carried out some operations using Botswana territory as a base of operations. The ANC is the African National Congress. The African National Congress at this point is receiving Soviet aid. So from the perspective of the Soviet Union, if they topple the government of Botswana, this tiny country uh, next to South Africa, which is militarily quite powerful, not only will they nullify Western interests in keeping that country independent, uh, they will perhaps simply provoke a South African invasion. 
Mm -hmm. The result then is very interesting. I note that Botswana has no active political communist party that is aligned with the Soviet Union. It has small Trotskyite groups and small Maoist groups. So in other words, I think the Soviet Union is just not supporting local communists there. Yeah. Because I think they like Botswana as a thorn in the side of South Africa much more uh, than they could gain from a communist Botswana. Yeah, so this this could be sort of construed as luck, but on the other hand, like given the other successes achieved by the regime in Botswana, um, it, it's sort of like a pretty good hypothesis that, that they were thinking actively about these things and, and positioning themselves. And, and able to navigate uh, both West and East on that one. I mean, it yeah. kind of reminds me a little bit about of, of Pakistan, the way that you know they're they're nominally friendly with the U.S. and yet harbor the Taliban, for example. I, I think the extremely important point was while Botswana was not friendly with South Africa because of obviously clashes and disagreements over the racial questions, um, they were able to walk the line where they never provoked a full-scale invasion from South Africa. Mm -hmm. Had they had poorly disciplined military leadership mm -hmm. or poorly executed foreign policy, South Africa would have manufactured a pretext to remove the thorn from yeah. their side, yet they never gave South Africa the rope that, yeah. they, that South Africa could have used to, to hang them. Um, and I think this is rare for many countries. Many countries, due to internal disorganization, uh, fail to fail to avoid giving much more powerful states the pretext that the much more powerful states crave to invade the weaker ones, mm -hmm. or like yeah. intervene, intervene. Yeah, if you're in a weak position, you have to be very careful to to step carefully so that you don't mm -hmm. get get squashed uh, by by these larger players. And it seems like they've been able to they they were able to do that in the Cold War. Right, right. Um, I think that this sort of um, relatively disciplined foreign policy, I have to emphasize the proactive positive sides of it, where, you know, when, when, the, when the Tswana royal family is trying to solve the serious problem of will Cecile Rhodes invade our country and just add it to his, like, mining empire, they sent out an expedition of three of their best statesmen, some of them very, uh, some of them basically, I think, uh, educated in England, to go petition the British government. So you have to imagine this is like a really desperate diplomatic expedition. There are these wonderful statues of Kama the Third, yeah. that's the king of uh, the king of Botswana at the time, Sibela the First, and Bathoin the First. And I think Botswana's rightfully considered them uh, national heroes because they preserve what autonomy could be preserved. And that's the cover article or the cover photo on the article. Yeah, yeah. Those are some beautiful statues. Um, and I think this kind of active, proactive statecraft had been continuously, mm -hmm. had been continuously executed uh, by the state, and I expect it to in the future. I expect it's one of the African countries that will continue to be a beacon of stability. And if I had to bet, you know, were diamond prices to fall because of the diversification of their economy and because of political stability and the other kinds of mineral wealth that exist in the country, I think their stability would persist. Mm -hmm. So I think their partnership with beers over time is working out more and more in favor of local uh, local independent elites rather than being managed from afar, right? It's not a banana republic. That's the second cynical take I would hear when I would travel in uh, D.C. or New York. Uh, they would propose that it's, you know, it's a, it's a country dominated by a foreign uh, economic interest. But when you look on the ground, there are just no signs of that. Hmm. You have like a relatively high standard of living, and it's much more a partnership. 
that I think is working out well uh, for the government and people of Botswana. Well, and that, that goes into like the government of Botswana purchasing um, a stake in De Beers rather than just expropriating them. Correct, correct. Like you could call Saudi Arabia a uh, banana republic and that would be an incorrect statement because originally all their oil infrastructure was built by Americans. Right. And was, uh, you know, Aramco used to be the, uh, what was it? Was, it was uh, Standard Oil, I think. It was like in the Arab American oil company. Yeah. And over time, the Saudi royal family have bought out more and more of the stake of Aramco until it's purely the property of the Saudi royal family. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the partnership between De Beers and Swanen elites results in a pretty straightforward mutual stake in the stability of the country. So it's an interesting way to, um, you know, have have your cake and eat it too. Economic influence is often followed by political dependence, and here I think we have economic uh, economic benefits and continued political independence, and that's a very important, very difficult game to play. Mm-hmm. One interesting question uh, about going back to succession is the way that Botswana has has interspersed royal families. Uh, with with non-family presidencies, um, so because there could be a potential conflict where so, some faction of the elite has a conception of legitimacy that necessitates uh, like hereditary monarchy, for example. So I, it's interesting that that Botswana has managed to navigate that, and I'm I'm curious for your take on on how they were able to successfully navigate that. Yeah, like they've got the hereditary monarchy swapping out, tag teaming with civilians basically uh yes this is true uh though often these come out of the long-term personal associates right um the i think the partnership between the president and the vice president should be understood as important Mm -hmm. the vice president is not a ceremonial role like it is in the united states it's an active governing role in the country you are assisting the president and if the president is not happy with your performance they can always replace you so these are people that have built close personal political partnerships before they take the helm. So one of their continued bases of support is the royal family. Even if the royal family doesn't hold the presidency in the moment, you are strictly better off continuing working with the royal family than not. An interesting parallel could be here made between uh, Putin, Medvedev, Putin, Mm -hmm. where the situation was such that had Medvedev tried to sideline Putin he would have been cutting down one of the pillars on which his own presidency stood. Right. And I think, you know, now in retrospect, people tend to underestimate Medvedev's power and overestimate Putin's power. Uh, I think it was a legitimate partnership between the two uh, during the Medvedev presidency. It's only because it's worked out for Putin to be able to return to the presidency uh, that people have kind of forgotten about Medvedev. Um, the other factor here is a lot of the members are members of basically lower nobility or are related at a greater distance. Mm-hmm. And another, another relevant factor is there is this large pool of resources that is very easy to distribute centrally. So uh, I think some of the board members of the Beer Botswana are um, members of uh, the royal family. Uh, so if you try as a president to move against the royal family, I think you're you're trying to move, you're trying to move against uh, the largest company as well. And where does that end? Does that end with nationalization? Well, that kills the goose that lays the diamond eggs. So mm-hmm. not, not an option. Yeah. So one like contrary take here is that 
it, like a lot of this stability is coming from the relative centralization. Like we, we like this sort of discussed in the article that there's basically there's the one big company, there's the one big ethnic group, um, there's, there's the one big royal family, and and sort of by their game has basically just been by aligning all these things quite well, they've they've managed to keep it. Um, to keep things working together, and they haven't really had any established rival groups that they have to deal with. Whereas in a more dynamic polity like the United States, where you have many things going on, um, like many different industries, many different um, sort of factions and, and organizations and so on, it, it's, um, it sort of brings to mind that, that there is this contrast, like, well, how how well would would this uh, this mechanism work in a more dynamic context, or like in a more dynamic context, what additional things would you have to do to make this work? And I, I'm sort of curious in, in like drilling into that a little bit. It's interesting, right? Like, I think relevant factors here people might cite a resource-rich economy, they might cite low mm -hmm. population as things that favor them, but then consider the comparison between. Kazakhstan and Venezuela. Right. I think that's a very relevant comparison where uh, Venezuela seems to fail at this quite badly, despite being in all of these ways quite similar to a country like Kazakhstan or a country like Botswana. It still requires competent government and stable government. Another counterexample would be Libya. Libya has a relatively low population density. It has, like, in theory, you know, a pretty good uh, base for exporting oil. Right. But the state has simply not returned. Libya today remains a failed state after the fall of Gaddafi. Yeah. There's been no reconsolidation. Yeah, so, so I mean, it's clear that, like, uh, Botswana's more towards the end of competent government um, on, on that spectrum. I guess the question I'm asking is, how much harder would it be? Like, like so there's the difficulty of what they've done, which is bring stability to, to this, this particular situation. And then how much harder would it be to bring stability to a more dynamic um, like larger polity with more going on. That's well, the question well, I'm getting at. Is like, like, what's the level of? Is it like, okay, they've got competent government, and competent government could manage, you know, Nigeria as well as they could manage Botswana, or is it like, actually, there's this huge extra set of issues that to manage, well, say, Nigeria. First off, if we if we think about Nigeria, I think Nigeria has several other problems. Um, I do think, however, Nigeria with competent government could be run as well as Botswana is. Yeah, uh, totally. I don't expect Nigerian institutions to progress to that point. I think they have a very talented population, but for now I expect that population, the talented fraction, to continuously leave Nigeria rather than stay. And I think uh, the patronage structure around oil in Nigeria is politically dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. When people talk about the resource curse, they don't think about, well, is the is the is the patronage structure around resource extraction functional or not functional? Does it add to honest government or does it detract from it? Right. And I think in Nigeria, many political fights are fought using patronage, using the resources acquired through a fragmented patronage of oil. The normal story might be that you want to disperse oil wealth. I actually think that if you try to disperse oil wealth, you breed political instability in a country. Mm -hmm. Even if you look at a country such as Norway, they've intentionally depoliticized. You know, a European country, long history of uh, stable government, 
they've depoliticized oil and just put all the you know winnings essentially into a national sovereign wealth fund. Mm-hmm. And the sovereign wealth fund, it is politically taboo to propose tapping the wealth fund for either military expenditure or social expenditure. Mm-hmm. It's considered the retirement fund of the country, if we're being like a little bit right. cynical about it. Um, but uh, I think that's extremely important. You want these very lucrative resource flows to be as depoliticized as possible. So mm-hmm. I think this is quite viable even in a in a more complex country. Now, what if you're dealing with a diversified economy that's not resource-based? I think right. Singapore is the relevant counterexample here, mm-hmm. where in Singapore you also have successful succession. Uh, I think Lee Kuan Yew's uh, son is the current prime minister of Singapore. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Lee Kuan Yew is brilliant. I think the son is competent. Uh, but I think that competence is sufficient to preserve Singapore's status as a developed economy, a stable political system, and so on. Uh, so, Samo, while we still have you here, let's. I want to switch gears from Botswana to a broader discussion of of Africa and and China's involvement in Africa. I know you've been doing some some research in, into that. So, I want to talk specifically about China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is China's global economic. Uh, initiative to build infrastructure uh, in places like Southeast Asia, the Balkans, and especially Africa. Uh, so my question is basically, how, how is China going to avoid the, the same problems of, of nationalization of infrastructure that, you know, uh, countries like the U.S. S- suffered with, with uh, you know, the Panama Canal and uh, oil assets in Saudi Arabia, etc.? Well, the U.S. government solved the problem of nationalization of the Panama Canal through exercising quite a bit of political authority over Panama all up until the 1980s. So I think the Chinese will likely solve the problem in a similar manner. If the investments are made by politically well-connected people, uh, Mm -hmm. which is often the case in China, I do believe uh, they will bring to bear political pressures on the relevant countries, up to including perhaps sponsoring coups uh, or inter... We saw that with Zimbabwe. Yeah, Zimbabwe. Yes. Uh, they're, they're now on the yuan as <laughs> the currency. Yes. And uh, the other possibility is, you know, people don't tend to think about France's neocolonial empire, but France has a neocolonial empire in West Africa. They regularly deploy special forces to intervene militarily uh, in the relevant states. Mm-hmm. It might seem um, impossible to imagine Chinese interventions even military interventions in these states with special forces or with small ground forces. Uh, But I do expect this will happen. Their naval presence in the region is uh, stronger than ever. Uh, They played a vital role in uh, solving Somali, the Somali piracy problem. Mm -hmm. And they are continuously also patrolling uh, around the Horn of Africa. And the naval presence there is going to be developed further and further. With enough naval presence comes the possibility of some small scale interventions. Who exactly is going to stop them? I'm going to note that even a few decades ago, had the Soviet Union toppled a government in Zimbabwe, the West would have felt obliged to counter move and take the place back, you know, take it back or, you know, prop up a friendly government. This was not done. Mm -hmm. Was it not done because it's not an interesting or important enough country? Or was it not done because our collective attention is not yet looking at the importance of East Africa. East Africa is one of the three corners of the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. Uh, East Africa is one of the best places in terms of uh, economic growth. Uh, You can control basically, uh, I think, the Red Sea 
is very much held hostage by anything that happens around the Horn of Africa. Yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of trade that's going to be coming between India and East Africa as well. The other corners, such as uh, you know, countries such as Sri Lanka and Pakistan, are also part of the wider Chinese strategy, mm -hmm. as is perhaps Australia. Well, there's an argument to be made that um, neglect of the situation in, in, like U.S. neglect of the situation in Zimbabwe, is is partly because uh, a lot of uh, American media has been obsessed with um, Russian interference in Europe and in America, and you know potentially invading various countries in Europe, and and you know is this whale a, a Russian spy whale? Uh, I don't know if you guys if you guys recently saw that article, and so but and but also you know that's partly uh, you know that that's downstream of conflict between the the Trump administration and other American elites about uh, legitimacy over over the election results, and so you know there's there's been a lot of you know upsetness and anger and and also obsession uh, with with Russia as the main geopolitical foe. But now that uh, the Mueller report has come out and a lot of these issues have basically died, uh, the, the pivot to considering China as, as the main geopolitical rival is, is definitely happening and, and you're seeing that reflected in the media as well. Um, so it's possible now if, if China were to make big moves again in, in Africa, maybe more coups, actually uh, that, that, that we would pay uh, closer attention to it now as opposed to one or two years ago. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and another interesting point uh, is that uh, China's efforts in Zimbabwe were a wild success, whereas ours in Venezuela uh, didn't do quite so well, uh, to put it mildly. Yeah, and, and and on the Trump thing in general, like the the fight with Trump is sort of ongoing. So uh, it, it's ongoing. It's ongoing, but a lot of it has subsided. Yeah, at least on the Russia issue. But like insofar as that issue is ongoing, the American elite is going to have a lot of its attention turned towards its its internal issues rather than right. rather than managing the empire. Yeah. I'm also going to say that the U.S. had not had a strong presence in East Africa, where mm -hmm. after the end of the British Empire, there was never a massive U.S. presence there, and some previous interventions had also failed. Uh, what was the um, the case of the downed helicopter? I forget. Was that in Somalia? Yes, that's right. The Black Hawk Down. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I made the Hollywood movie about <laughs> it. Uh, I think the view was that this area has no true power trying to project influence. So the gains of trying to control the area are very low. You know, if it's uncontested, if it sort of must work with the international order as set up by the United States and its allies, why, why bother, right? Why fix something that's not broken? Yeah, I guess, I guess a lot of the importance of East Africa mm -hmm. is to an Indio, Indian Ocean power. Like if, correct. if an Indian Ocean power trying to develop Africa. Correct, correct. And further, you know, during Soviet times, there was U.S thinking in the area. And uh, let's remember the Soviet Union had some early gains. When people think about the famous famine in Africa, they don't consider this famine came in the aftermath of a, of a communist revolution where the emperor was deposed, the emperor of Ethiopia was deposed, 
and they collectivized land. And much as in Ukraine in the 1920s and 30s, there was famine in Ethiopia mm -hmm. in the 1980s. It wasn't, um, you know, a mysterious feature. Uh, it wasn't uh, a result of developmental issues. It was straightforwardly land collectivization causing the famine. Mm -hmm. uh, there were other states in Africa that uh, aligned themselves with the Soviet Union. And, you know, during the Cold War, I think Africa received much less attention from Western media than, say, Asia or Europe, even though to the Soviets, it was a vital part of their strategy. Let's remember Che Guevara, I think, dies in Angola trying to overthrow the government. Am I remembering that right? I know he was supposed to go there at one point. I can't, I can't recall that. Well, then, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll check out, so. I'll check my facts. I do know uh, Castro gave a big speech congratulating Comrade Che for uh, leaving the country and, you know, working with uh, revolutionary forces in various countries. Um, Truly a, a Thomas Jefferson-like figure. Oh, man. Oh, man. Precisely. <laughs> well, you know, you should read some of the early articles on Fidel Castro as well. The 1950s articles say ambiguously good things about him. It's very interesting. Um, but to go back, uh, there were definitely Cuban fighters fighting in Angola, whether or not Che was with them. Uh, there were Soviet uh, fighters in various uh, civil wars in Africa. And the U.S. understood this. Uh, the Soviet idea was, well, we lost the Middle East. We are failed to acquire the Middle East. Maybe we can get Africa on our side. And that was their last major attempt at uh, expansion of a sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. uh, after the Cold War ended, there was no seeming geopolitical foe, no Indian power. I think China as an Indian ocean power is quite viable a future. It's quite plausible. It uh, helps secure the problem with oil supply as well where uh, almost all Chinese oil, uh, all the oil the Chinese economy is consuming, goes through the Indian Ocean. That's why Singapore is so important, right? The Straits of, uh, what is the Straits of Malacca? Yeah, yeah. Straits of Malacca is what's yeah. so important. So you kind of are securing a route from Singapore, uh, sorry, you're from Suez to Malacca, the route can be secured with an Indian Ocean presence. So there are, there are at least two possible outcomes for, for Belt and Road. One is that uh, you know, the in basically most regions, the U.S. is displaced as uh, the hegemon, and China has a shocking amount of uh, direct or indirect power over local governments and states. The other is that China makes a lot of uh, you know foolish investments. Uh, it does build some infrastructure, and and unfortunately, it, it ends up being kicked out by the local governments in a lot of cases and, and they say thanks thanks for the infrastructure investments but uh, you know we'll see you later uh, so which do you, which outcome do you think is is more likely because I I've seen you know various China analysts I respect on on both sides mm. I would say the Chinese are making at least one big mistake the one big mistake is they are relying on Chinese companies to build all the infrastructure in other words there's no large local political um, stakeholder from the construction business that wants to keep Chinese money coming in. So if a government nationalizes a Chinese infrastructure project, from the perspective of the locals, it is all pure win. If, however, they nationalized a project that was built by local construction companies, the local construction companies would object. This might seem politically irrelevant until you realize that construction is one of the most corrupt industries possible. So a lot of political money is usually laundered through construction projects that have very bloated budgets. In other words, China would be paying a large, a high price for overpriced infrastructure, but a part of that high price would be translated into 
straightforward economic support to politicians, local politicians, in a number of the countries. Does that happen uh, internally in China? Because I know they do a lot that of does, really weird construction stuff. That happens a little bit in China, but the party is trying to maintain discipline. Right. Whenever they find that happening in a province of China, they clamp down quite hard on it. Mm-hmm. I think it does happen in uh, Chinese People's Liberation Army construction projects. Uh, because of an unusual quirk of the way Maoist China is set up, the People's Liberation Army just runs factories. Mm-hmm. They just run factories and can build factories and can even produce civilian gear in military factories. So if you want to think about it, it would be the difference between having a defense contractor and having an, uh, you know, a factory run directly by the Pentagon. And then having a factory run by the Pentagon not just build you know, rifles or tanks, but uh, build you know, phones or make t-shirts and sell them abroad. So that's an example of uh, politically induced corruption, where things that are normally supposed to be used for defense purposes are allowed to be used for some civilian production and are hence re-specialized towards civilian production, making a profit for uh, Chinese Chinese military mm-hmm. officers and officials. And the, the, the party is less and less happy with this, but doesn't really have the power to, to challenge the PLA on their own ground. Hmm. So I, I think the, the the construction stuff is very prominent in Turkey. Erdogan, uh, right. Erdogan funded a bunch of his early political stuff through construction projects in Istanbul, where he got a cut, and where his political allies got a cut. Mm-hmm. So, um, un, unlike the analysis of Belt and Road, sort of contrasting the okay, it's a really efficient uh, geopolitical expansionary measure that's actually going to work versus the, um, the the narrative that it's that it's like. Um, just uh, a waste of money. Um, it's it's just them like LARPing as as liberals or whatever. Like I've heard sort of various criticisms like that, uh, or it's just like Chinese money trying to escape from China. Um, so these these could be like simultaneously both true at the same time. The, in that there could be like a disciplined um, geopolitical push putting putting through the key infrastructure. And then also just a lot of corruption coming along for the yeah. ride. And so people look at the thing and they see huge amounts of corruption. They see a lot of wasteful, dumb uh, investments of the type that you see generally with Chinese foreign money where like, there's a lot of money trying to escape from China or get laundered in various ways. And, and so you see all these weird investments and you look at that and you say, okay, well, this isn't the Chinese Communist Party playing some, some smart game, but actually... Uh, like it could be that's lost in that lost in that mess. They are actually they're playing a smart game. So I'm. This is just a possibility that occurs to me. I mm-hmm. haven't looked into this. I'm I'm curious what you guys think. I I would say that the story where both is true is a very good story. There's a lot to be made even when you. There's a lot of money to be made. A lot of reputations to be won even when foreign policy is executed competently. If you looked at British foreign policy at its peak, mm-hmm. uh, there was both personal profit and corruption, as well as like some firm strategic directions. And, and like piracy even. Correct, correct. You had people who would transition from piracy to, uh, to a leisurely merchant life and back again, depending on where the ROI was better. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, let's think about this. If you look at Silicon Valley in the 1990s or even more so the early 2000s, was it something of a joke with many billions of dollars spent on completely failed, foolish, and corrupt projects? Almost certainly. Yes. Was it the center of technological innovation 2000 to, say, 2015? I think it was. Yes. 
Uh, and I think with China, there are clear cases of geopolitical wins. Italy essentially signing on to Belt and Road is massive. This means that in the future, Italy is going to want to continue receiving Chinese subsidies as much as it can, and Italian politicians will figure out ways to gain patronage from Chinese support. You now have one of Europe's biggest economies, a small, you know, no longer a small, easy to ignore state, but one of Europe's biggest economies vetoing any sort of common measures the EU might try to push versus China. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of uh, the European Union's structural weaknesses. It's possible for a country like Russia to make friends with a country like Hungary and perhaps derail a process. It is possible for a country like China to make friends with Italy and derail a possible common process against China. And it's possible for the United States to block any measures it doesn't want, previously with the help of the United Kingdom and perhaps in the future with the help of a state like Poland. Yeah, I wonder how much this was deliberate, sort of, in, I mean, in the aftermath of the war, obviously, mm. they just fought a big war to prevent the, the construction of a, con a continental hegemon. Uh, and, you know, so obviously any kind of federalish project that they're setting up on the continent is not going to be real enough to be able to resist the United States, mm. uh, and, and thus not real enough to be able to resist Russia or China either. The French state... Uh France, under de Gaulle, objected to adding uh, Britain to the European community. Meanwhile, the United States strongly lobbied for adding the United Kingdom mm -hmm. uh, to the European uh, community, which was uh, the precursor to the European Union. Right. Um, I think, though, you will have clear wins in Europe. Uh, I think you will have mixed results in Central Asia where I expect the Russian cultural and military and political influence should not be underrated. In a very serious way, much as uh, Australia remains very much Western aligned on security questions, but is Chinese aligned on economic questions, you might have a state such as Kazakhstan or Tajikistan be security aligned with Russia and economically aligned with China. So their gains yeah. might be limited there. And, and this is an interesting thing that we've kind of a point we've made previously is that the Chinese Communist Party is in fact uh, has some Marxist sympathies, which means they do consider the economic power to be the foundation of later types of power. And, and so they, they, they pay close attention to where they have that economic power. They might be right. They might be wrong. I think if they were good Marxists, they would understand that, you know, economic power can be expropriated through other means. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not clear. There's a fun discussion to be had, you know, how communist, how Marxist is China? Like in another one, how Maoist, uh, how Marxist is Maoism? Maoism proposes you can skip urbanization and have uh, peasants gather together and make steel economically. This obviously did not work out. The Great Leap Forward did not work out in a number of ways. Uh, China did not industrialize through this. And the reformist faction, who are usually interpreted as pro-capitalist, well, you know, they might have just been orthodox Marxist. Marx believed there is a necessary stage of capitalism that right. results in massive accumulation of wealth. If you are right now a straightforwardly orthodox Marxist without many Maoist influences, China seems to be validating your theories. You can say, well, the Soviet Union's mistake was they tried to be powerful before they were rich. Yeah. We have now become rich. We will become powerful and we will create a society of plenty where capitalism will slowly abolish itself with the guiding hand of uh, the Communist Party. That's where perhaps a Leninist element comes in. Right.
so I think one of the things that we should consider is that is Chinese leadership actually significantly Marxist? If so, you might for the first time in the U.S.'s history have a serious economic rival with a very different economic ideology. Yeah, and I think whether or not they're Marxist, I'm not sure, but certainly they have a very different ideology than, than uh, America does right now, and they are quite powerful economically. And, and this, mm. is, this is one of the big uh, sort of bets we're making is that you know, in the Cold War, we could kind of get away with, with having a, a, an incompetent and impoverished enemy, whereas we're kind of shaping up for, for a new geopolitical rivalry where we no longer have the benefit of uh, an economically inferior rival. P people forget that uh, the United States economy far outshone the Soviet economy, even if the Soviet economy was at its best. Yeah, I've, I've heard figures like five times. Five times, and also let's not remember, let's not forget European allies such as Britain, France, West Germany, Italy, yeah. or Asian allies that developed such as Japan. Uh, the economic stack, economic power, was firmly on the side of uh, international Western-style institutions. I think in China there is reason to be optimistic with regard to their foreign policy, and the reason is they have few immediate security concerns. An invasion of mainland China is essentially impossible. They do not have the kind of concerns that, say, Russia has with security in Ukraine. Right. Uh, they do, however, have uh, issues of national pride. And issues of national pride can be just as devastating and can derail a good foreign policy, as obviously happened in World War I with the entangled national prides of Germany and Britain and their rivalry. Uh, I think something like that could happen in Asia over a state with like... Japan. Or, or with Japan, uh, over a state like uh, Taiwan, for example. Right, Taiwan's a more close example, yeah. Even if, if China isn't uh, properly uh, communist in, in sort of like a doctrinal sense, first, its leaders definitely say it is, whether they believe it is, actually believe it is, is another question. Uh, it's interesting that there, there might be every incentive on a foreign policy level to say, actually, we're more or less uh, like Singapore. It's like sort of authoritarian democracy or like, uh, you know, capitalism just with a with Chinese characteristics, as right. it were. Right. Uh, and so the reason why that might not be happening, for example, is that uh, expressed loyalty to to communism might be the prerequisite for playing social games and party leadership. Like you can't be seen Especially if, if, you know, filial piety applies to ideologies, you know, you can't really be seen to be disparaging communism if that's, you know, the, the mechanism of advancement, for example. There, there's a strong parallel I want to tie to some of the previous discussions on Rome and so on. If you were to denounce or try to fight Marxism within the Chinese Communist Party, you are undermining one of the pillars of Chinese legitimacy. Right. The pillars are, you know, sort of prosperity through this kind of like guided development f from capitalism eventually to socialism. The idea that this will eventually benefit all Chinese because we're evolving into a, a socialist society. And the idea that we defeated the Japanese and therefore like we're national liberators both socially and nationally. Yeah, it might very well be the case that uh, by by adhering strongly to communism on, on, on a public-facing level, they lose foreign legitimacy, but they're willing to make that sacrifice to maintain domestic legitimacy because a lot of the top leadership just was active 
during the early days of, of the communist revolution in, well, in China. And it's often a matter of family as well. We should remember this is like second, third generation. These mm-hmm. are sometimes second or third generation party officials. Yeah, right? right. The term red princeling has been used for someone that's like you know, born into a high level uh, party family. One point that's important to make on the ideology of the party is it's actually pretty difficult for an elite that's coordinated around ideology to change that ideology. Mm-hmm. Like, like, what are you going to do? Go, go to the party congress and say, hey, actually, guys, I think we should do something different. Uh, I think we should call ourselves capitalists now. Like, it, it's, it, it's pretty, you know, obviously that kind of frank discussion of, about the, the core commitments of the elite uh, are very difficult to have. And so it might just be unnecessary. Like, why would you do that? Right. So so the point is, like, you know, if they're going around saying that they're communist and their internal legitimacy is based on being communist, well, like, what are they going to run some secret other ideology internally? Like, they're just going to reframe the things they want to do within the system of communism hmm. and be shaped by that system. And but I think I think the most important thing uh, about the. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party in China, or like one of the most important things is, you know, whether or not, whether whatever their internal ideology is, they are in fact like a, a party. They, they are a single party that, that like is a single party uh, political system. They control the state. Uh, they don't, they're not, they don't really have to have uh, accountability, etc. And so they can just like choose to take the thing one way or another, which is very structurally different from, um, from from things in the West and so on, and and like just much more unitary in in the party. I, I think this is significantly true. However, the People's Liberation Army's People's Liberation Army has significant elements of being a state within the state. Yeah, and there are are some frictions between the Chinese Communist Party and uh, the leadership of the PLA. Mm-hmm. Uh, PLA generals are scrutinized quite severely for any sign of political ambition. Mm-hmm. This might actually be an argument in favor of a peaceful China. Here's the argument against foreign military intervention: successful and high-profile foreign military intervention elevates generals into positions of prestige and adoration across society. Very much would weaken the party. Exactly. And if you look at examples such as uh, the Soviet Union's treatment of its top generals, even during a dire situation like the Great Patriotic War, that is the Eastern Front of World War II, political considerations would often win out over the necessity of defeating Germany. Yeah. One thing I notice uh, about the, the whole military situation in China, though, is the military propaganda in China is quite... Uh, quite good, like mm. uh, quite powerful stuff. You, you look at their advertisements for for you know joining the People's Liberation Army, mm-hmm. and and I think their the movies where they sort of portray Chinese military operators operating in, in East Africa doing all kinds of heroic things. Like this is um, very much like boosting the military. And I wonder, I mean, obviously that that propaganda must be in part uh, funded by the military. Uh, but it's the, certainly the allowed by the party. Yeah, and so it's the even perhaps is, encouraged. Is I wonder, I wonder what the party's stance on that stuff is. I think the party is very much uh, hoping that they can both marginalize or politically make irrelevant the rising class of the very wealthy in China, mm-hmm. and simultaneously fragment military control and put it in the hands of party people. If you do that successfully. Pro-military propaganda 
without personal positions of authority and power by military leadership still results in a politically stable setup. Mm -hmm. If the power is all in the hands of civilian leadership, the soldiers can be very motivated. But is any individual general elevated in the propaganda? Mm -hmm. I have watched oh, some yes. Chinese propaganda as well, and I see bravery of the troops. I see beautiful modern technology, but I see no great figure like a Patton or like a MacArthur. Note how those were prominently featured during World War II U.S. propaganda and even 1950s American propaganda. That's an important point. Yeah, yeah. Without individual, uh, without name, without leadership, when soldiers are given an order who to shoot on and who not to shoot on, they're probably going to listen to the party. They're not going to listen to a general that's not their personal hero. Note the fact that soldiers would listen to the party was possibly what saved the Chinese Communist Party in 1989. You mean in the uh, Tiananmen Square incident? Uh, yes, yes. Well, I think uh, that's a good place to end there. We could keep going, but uh, we'll probably have to have Samo on again for, for another podcast down the road. Uh, this has been the Palladium Podcast, Episode 9. I encourage all our listeners to go check out Samo's other work. You can find him uh, online at uh, Samo Boria on Twitter. That's B-U-R-J-A. And uh, he also has a personal website, samoborea.com. And uh, you should also check him on YouTube as well. We'll include all of the links in the show description, so you can check them out there. Uh, Samo, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. This was, yeah. This was a lot of fun. This was great. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me on the show. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye.